Okay, so this morning, I'm Mike, and I want to tell you about Ayad's Law. Ayad's Law. Ayad was a friend of mine. He was a soccer player, but for fun, we played basketball sometimes. And uh, Ayad had a thing he would always say, if you went for a shot and it headed toward the hoop, he'd go, well, you had direction, because I usually missed, and so, you know, that was a good thing. If, on the other hand, it went somewhere besides close to the hoop, he would say, you got to have direction. He always said, first direction, then distance. It's more important to get direction. And so I'd like, actually, a couple of volunteers. Any volunteers? You, come. One more. I'm sorry, was there a hand back there? Yes, come on up. All right. So there's a green one for you and a green one for you. And what I'd like you to do, I, I realize that this is a small hoop. It's a very light ball. But I'd like you to try to shoot that into that hoop. Feel free, get as close as you want without actually ascending all the stairs. <laughs> without actually ascending oh. all the stairs. Oh, <laughs> direction. Okay. He had the direction though, right? Okay, now what I'd like you to do, each of you, don't aim for this, aim for something else. Oh, pfft. Um, thank you. you. You have performed your, your volunteer duties beautifully. Thank you, crowd. The thing I will tell you about that second shot is they were never going to make it in the basket. Am I right? Did they have a chance? Because they weren't aiming for the right thing, and they were actually aiming for something else. So, Ayad's Law... You need direction before everything else. And the point today, just going into this whole thing, is that Jesus is the direction we're shooting for. We're shooting for Jesus. We're pointing at Jesus. We're bowing to Jesus. We're content being in Jesus. And if you and I are aiming at something else, whether we realize it or not, we'll never be being or thinking or doing what we were designed to do. We'll never be Holy Spirit-driven because it's dad joke time and the title of the sermon. All right, later I will explain my clothing choice, and I hope you'll also learn which 90s Christian band I wish would reform. Okay, let's get started in the text. It, it's going to be five episodes today. And I'm going to spend the most time on this first episode, Disciples and the Object of Belief. Verse 1 in Acts 19. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Just a reminder, people put the verses and chapters in later. This wasn't originally in what Luke wrote. So isn't that a weird place to put a verse break? There he found some disciples. Uh-huh. I like this one, though. I like this one because it kind of works, because the way I hear it, you're reading along, there he found some disciples, and it's like record scratch right there. 
And I think if you think about it as sort of a discontinuous moment, it will help explain the rest of it. So let me first say this. Apollos has been in Ephesus. He goes off to Corinth. Paul has been elsewhere, and he's coming into Ephesus. So they're doing kind of a switcheroo here. Now, back to this disciples thing. The Greek manuscripts, they're written in all uppercase. There's no punctuation at all. And even the words are run together. It almost looks like a cipher if you're one of these, you know, kind of crypto people. If instead of that reality, what if quote marks had been invented? What if there were italics in this text? What if you could put a, a slash s for sarcasm or slash sigma, I guess, in Greek, to indicate that there's something off here? Don't know what it is, partners, but there's something wrong in Ephesus, is kind of what I get here. Here's how we know, because verse 2, this is Paul, asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, I just changed my tone of voice there, right? It, it's like a doubt. It's like a question. Something's off. They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Aha! Paul read the situation right. It's an interesting question for Paul to ask, right? Never met these people before. He meets some believers and says, are you sure? So, this is a meaningful question for Paul to start with. But let's put it in our own context. We're never going to have a meet and greet where you stand up and ask one another, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? We better not, anyway. Sometimes it's hard to hear tone in Scripture, I think. I'm not having any trouble hearing the tone in this passage. He found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He senses something is off with these so-called disciples, and I don't think it's off in the same way as the people who come to your door during mealtime and they are emphatic that they have the only way to God, and they would like to talk with you at length about what you need to do to get into God's good graces. Those people have it worse than these people do, but they're, they're ignorant about some stuff. And Paul is going to be addressing it, but Luke is writing this account, right? And he doesn't help us with any specifics about what exactly led Paul to understand that there was something amiss there. We're going to have to, you know, just take that on faith or sort that out ourselves, but let's look at verse 3. So he asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. They received John's baptism. Well, wait a minute. I was here last week, and that sounds an awful lot like what Pastor Tim was talking about in his passage. He described the ministry of Apollos in Ephesus, and at the end of the last chapter, it was clear that Apollos also started off only knowing about the baptism of John. So let's go back to Acts 18, verses 25 and 26. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor, this is Apollos, and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Here's the situation. Apollos is this very learned guy from Alexandria, which was a center of learning in that era. 
He'd come to Ephesus. He's teaching that Jesus was the Messiah based on the Hebrew scriptures alone. He doesn't have any crib notes from later developments, and he's figured out that Jesus is the Messiah. Like props to Apollos. This guy has it sorted out. His teaching was about Jesus. His teaching was accurate, but he still needed to be taught by Priscilla and Aquila. So the way I see it, Apollos is probably the smartest guy in any room he's basically ever in. He's probably the most educated guy in probably any room he's in. But a couple of tent makers are going to get him into their room and they're going to explain some things that he doesn't know about and it's going to open his eyes because he has the humility to hear them out and learn more. And you might be surprised who has a better understanding of things of God in one way or another than somebody else does. So this is totally unfair, but Barbara Simmons... I mean, you know, you're 40 now. Have you learned things from younger people in the time you've been here? (laughs) For the live stream, that was a yes from up in the choir loft. Uh, And we have learned things from Barbara. There is a give and take that happens in the body of Christ that's supposed to be there. Because you know something I don't. I know something you might not. And that's a big part of why connection with one another within Christ's community is key. Every believer needs other believers to help us understand better. And I think that's exactly why, despite also only knowing the baptism of John, that none of this kind of incident happens with Apollos. He doesn't need to receive the Holy Spirit. It would be odd for Luke to mention only for these new believers if it was the same situation. Are you following me? Apollos and these disciples, based on the text, have basically the similar understanding, except Apollos knows Jesus, even though nobody had adequately told him everything he needed to know about Jesus. He's further along than these disciples are. All right. The text is showing a difference between these two cases. The difference is Apollos knows Jesus. He follows Jesus. And when Priscilla and Aquila meet him, he already has received the Holy Spirit. He was following Jesus. He was sealed by the Spirit. What do I mean? Paul actually explains it in a letter to this church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So Apollos heard the message of truth in the Hebrew scriptures, He believed in Jesus the Messiah and was following him to the praise of God's glory. He was sealed. He was part of the body of Christ. He was not just going through the motions. He was not just trying to be good. He was not just tagging along. Now, every believer receives the Holy Spirit sealing us for God's glory because we belong to God. That's not what Paul saw in these disciples, though who knew John's baptism of repentance, who recognized their sin, knew they had to do better. What they didn't have 
was the correct object of belief. They knew to turn from something, but they didn't have a solid place to turn. And that object isn't a holy life, though those who are sealed by the Holy Spirit ought to live a life increasingly worthy of their calling. The object isn't a charitable life, though those who are marked by the Holy Spirit ought to be generous with all that God has given us, all that we have, all that we are. And that object isn't a reward either now or later, though those who are marked by the Holy Spirit are promised an inheritance from God. The object is Jesus. Have you heard that at this church before? I bet you have. The one whose gospel saved every single believer and who will be our judge when that day comes. Here's what Dora Greenwell said in the 19th century. I am not skilled to understand what God has willed, what God has planned. I only know at his right hand stands one who is my Savior. Dependence on Christ. And that's what Paul says and does. We finally get to verses 4 and 5. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then here's what the Holy Spirit does. Verses 6 and 7. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. This isn't baptism in the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? This is baptism in the name of Jesus, which is what these 12 men were missing. This is the fourth and final time recorded in Acts that the Holy Spirit comes on believers in a visible way like this. First in Jerusalem, then in Samaria, then in Caesarea, and now in Ephesus. And we've got this, this table here. So Acts 2, the Jerusalem situation, the 12 were there meeting, and all the disciples, tongues of fire, the whole nine yards, there are witnesses who are apostles. Those disciples were apostles. Samaria in Acts 8, Peter and John are there to see it happen. Apostles, people charged by Jesus with development and care of his church, see it happen to Samaritans. <gasps> Those people. They say, yep, that's legit. Caesarea, Peter witnesses this thing happening, happening among Gentiles. And now in Acts 19, Paul witnesses this happening in Ephesus. Ephesus. I can say this. But those last two are both groups of Gentiles. So why is this one different? How does it fit the pattern of the expansion? It could be that Ephesus represents a stepping stone of the gospel. These others are, are on the, the western side of the Mediterranean and now we're all the way out at the margin of Asia, headed toward what we call the continent of Europe. It could be a hint that Paul's authority as an apostle is as valid as Peter's or John's. But more than those things, I think the real answer is that this is about a group of disciples who didn't comprehend Jesus as their Savior and Lord, and they could still encounter and desire Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit. Their faith was deficient, but as a group of believers, their conversion is confirmed 
by the presence of an apostle and by signs of the Holy Spirit's presence. And look, we're all learning more as we go along here. More about God who is infinite, so you will never run out of things to learn about God, even if you spend eternity with him. There's always more to know. More about Jesus, who he is, how he called us to live, what he is to us. More about the Holy Spirit, by whose power we do what Jesus calls us to do. So where are you in knowing God? Where are you in following Jesus, in serving Jesus' bride by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is something that Tim alluded to before in the service. Now, I am all for the power of the Holy Spirit, but I think I've told this congregation a number of times, I've seen pursuit of the Holy Spirit's power in ways that were unbiblical. Not just unbiblical, they required the twisting of Scripture in order to justify them. And not just twisting of Scripture, they created divisions within congregations. One commentator said it pretty plainly, so I want to point this out. This is uh, from a commentary by Simon Kistemacher. He says, in Acts, numerous people were baptized but did not speak in tongues. 3,000 believers in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. The Ethiopian official, Paul in Damascus, Lydia and her household, the Philippian jailer and his family. Furthermore, many people who believe are filled with the Holy Spirit but do not speak in an ecstatic tongue. Peter, who faces the Sanhedrin. Stephen, addressing the Sanhedrin. And Paul, confronting Elimus. So, I want to say, if you've been told that you are less of a Christian, or even not a Christian, because you don't speak in tongues, please understand this is not the message of Scripture. Now, if you have a different view and you want to come at me after service, feel free, but you better read the context around your proof texts, is all I'm going to say about that. All right, the whole point of this whole episode is that the object of Christian belief is... Okay, the whole point of this episode, he said scintillatingly, is that the point of Christian belief, the object of Christian belief is... Okay, thank you. The thing Apollos had was Jesus at his center. The thing these disciples didn't initially have was Jesus at their center. Don't flit off in pursuing something that isn't the center of Christianity, of life, of eternity. The object of Christian belief is Jesus. Is he the focus of your attention? All right, episode two. Teaching opposition and miracles, where power comes from. So he sets this dozen disciples down the path of following Jesus for real, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and Paul proceeds where? The place he always goes, to the synagogue. Okay, so Paul heads to the synagogue, and in verse 8, he entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Three months of active ministry by a Christian in a synagogue, pretty great. Things are going well, right? Verse 9, but some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. And the way is a, a way of referring to the Christian church at the time. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Okay, so opposition rises in the synagogue where Paul had been fruitful for a time. 
and it's now hard times. And I want to mention as an aside that the way that rabbis are believed to have interacted at the time, and some do today as well, many really, is to have debates without necessarily believing they're going to convince everybody of their view. I think this passage means this is something you will hear more often than the only possible interpretation of this passage is that. Now, you will often hear that more strident expression here. Why is that? There are plenty of things that are debatable, and hopefully we're pointing those out, but we tend to spend more time on the things that we think are sure, the things we think are enduring, the things that we think are true, the things that we think are reliable. It's a high value for the teaching team at Church of the Valley, and not everybody appreciates that approach, and not everybody who's ever come here has stayed, and that's fine. It feels especially okay when we look at Paul and the difficulty that someone like him had when he made Jesus and the kingdom of God the main point, it turned people off. What does he do? He moves, apparently, to a Gentile's lecture hall or school. And we think this would have been during the noon break, okay? Um, late morning, maybe 11, to late afternoon, maybe 4. It's too hot in the region, no air conditioning, not even a swamp cooler. And so your labors get to cease. And instead of going home for siesta, some folks go over to this hall and listen to Paul speak about Jesus. You could discuss the kingdom of God with the apostle to the Gentiles, who himself was on break from his leatherworking and tent making. That's an amazing picture if you think about it. The opportunity that the people had, and this is this long stretch of continuous ministry in a place where there's already been option, uh, opposition arising and confronting Paul. Verse 10, this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. This is a huge ministry impact. Total market saturation of this area of Asia Minor. And Luke gives us an indication of what was really going on. Verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. It doesn't say Paul did extraordinary miracles. It doesn't say Paul's teaching performed extraordinary miracles. It doesn't say that Paul's idea performed extraordinary miracles or his influence or his name, but God and Jesus' name. Not Paul's authority, but Jesus' authority. So don't be confused and don't be distracted. God chose to do what? Verse 12. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Anybody sick? Anyone? No? Got a hand? Here, see if that does you any good. You'll let me know when it does any good, right? I've, I've got an apron. Here, you've got, a, you've got a bad wing. This is not normative biblical behavior. Nowhere does it say, and so all the disciples took their work clothes and handed them out so that people would be healed. 
if, if the way that you want to serve the Church of the Valley community is by having an apron ministry for healing, we're going to have to talk. And, and here's, here's my rule. Every apron or handkerchief that goes out better result in a, a healing that we can actually verify in order for that to make any sense. But that's, that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is there is a move of God in this place that is unlike other moves that we've seen in history, even in Scripture. All right. <laughs> Apron ministry will sweep your region with Holy Spirit power. <clears throat> what this passage does do is highlight who wields the power. It's not some bozo with an apron, okay? It's God. And it indicates that God can use the flimsiest tools, whether a person or in this case garments, to rescue people from sickness and from oppression. So rather than wondering which of your clothes you should send to the sick, maybe redouble your prayer for those who are sick. Maybe ask God as you're praying for someone who's sick in one way or another, God, what would you have me do with respect to this person that I care about who is sick, who I know about who is sick, in their minds, in their families, in their bodies, in their attitudes towards gracious King Jesus? Are you willing to be a conduit from God to somebody who needs help? Who has God put on your mind in this context who needs this kind of help? Have you been asking God for guidance in this kind of help, in this kind of situation? Consider asking God what you can do to serve those that he puts in your mind who need help. And it's probably not going to look like Paul looked sending stuff out through, through people to those who needed to be healed. How it looks is up to God, not to me, not to you. So, Ask God, what would you have me do? In fact, let's do this. Bow your heads for a moment. Let me pray. God, I ask that each person here who is thinking about someone that you've put on their mind, and each person who doesn't have someone in mind that you would put someone on their mind, would take this moment of quiet and think about what it is you might want us to do about it. Would you help us to yield to your plan and cooperate with you? Would you show your power in a way that's appropriate to the situation and need? And would you show it by making us willing to go and serve? Pray that in Christ's name. Amen. All right, that's not the end of the sermon. We can't skip this next part. Uh, we've just looked at God as the source of power for Paul's ministry. Let's have a look at how this doesn't work. Episode three, beat down at the exorcism where power comes from, part two. Verse 13, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Sort of the transitive property of authority or something here. And this is one of those non-obvious applications that uh, preachers probably hope is not going to be your takeaway from a sermon, okay? The, don't, don't do this. When around driving out evil spirits seems a little optimistic based on how this episode turns out, but maybe 
maybe the name of Jesus was powerful enough that God allowed it to be used for some to be delivered. I don't know. We'll stick with the text. How about that? I won't speculate. We'll stick with the text. I expected an amen. These are clearly not people who follow Jesus, okay? They've discovered what they think is an incantation. And F.F. Bruce, uh, uh, a commentator, says this isn't altogether surprising. The fact that the name of the God of Israel was not to be pronounced by vulgar lips was generally known among the pagans, misinterpreted by them according to regular magical principles. Several magical papyri, which have survived from those days to ours, contain attempts to reproduce the true pronunciation of the ineffable name. You know what ineffable means? It's so powerful and amazing you can't say it. As well as other Jewish expressions and names such as Sabaoth and Abraham, used as elements in magical spells. The closest parallel to the Ephesian exorcist misuse of the name of Jesus appears in a magical papyrus belonging to the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, which contains the adjuration, I adjure you by Jesus, the God of the Hebrews. Okay, just gives you a little hint of the not understanding the whole story that's going on in the magical environment here in Ephesus. Verses 14 to 16, I love these. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I know about, who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. (sighs) Now there's a pastor with a big loud voice in Texas who says, basically, and I'm paraphrasing, if you show up at the fight and you're wearing pants, and when you run away from the fight, you don't have any pants, you lost. (laughs) Handy life tip, right? Um, This also, this episode led to the name of this 90s band that I wish would reunite. They were called Black Eyed Siva, because, you know, they got the pants beat off them. They were called that for an album and an EP, and then they ditched their drummer, got a new one, had one more album by a new new band name called Model Engine, and I wish they still made music. All right, these guys were playing with fire, not Black Eyed Siva, but the Seven Sons. They thought they'd stumbled on a tool which they could use. They weren't interested in the Jesus whose authority they were quoting. They weren't interested in the Jesus Paul was preaching, but in the power they thought it could give them. But Jesus' power isn't to be used for our own ends. But they were casting out evil spirits, Mike. They were doing good. God's power is for God's glory. God's power is not primarily for your health. Not for mine. Sorry, Karen. God's power isn't for your success in any sense except the sense that you know who he is and enjoy his perfection and his grace and his faithfulness and his loving kindness. God's power is for God's glory. And God can certainly be glorified, has been, continues to be, will continue to be by the casting out of evil spirits, by healing physical situations, by rectifying financial situations, by mending relationships. God's power can be demonstrated in all kinds of ways as he desires. 
But that's not what was happening with these sons of Siva. Instead, we'll see that God is glorified. He's glorifying the name of Jesus by the failure of these guys. So, episode four, confession and destruction, where God's move takes us. So, news of this weird incident spreads, as you would imagine. But the result surprised me. I don't know about you. Verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. God's power couldn't be hijacked by a bunch of grifters. They couldn't make use of him. And when people saw that, Jesus was esteemed as a result. You didn't get to sully his name. God protected the name, the authority, the reputation of Jesus. And the people in the region saw it. Now, our nation has a long history of people using Jesus' name for their own ends. It's part of a long worldwide tradition. It's not just us. And although that can bring disrepute on Christ's church, in this case, it gives credibility to Jesus. And it results in repentance. So verses 18 and 19, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Some say a drachma represented a day's wages. I don't know if that's true, but if that's the case, it's well over 100 man years of salary destroyed in this event. That's giving up what you were depending on for your hope, for your confidence in life. That's turning your back on something that was unhelpful, that wasn't the answer, and that's continuing on. Is there something in your past that you haven't entirely let go of, that you've been stirred before. God said, you need to set that down. Maybe you need to burn it with fire. I'm not a big book-burning kind of guy, but what source of power do you depend on but need to stop? And are you ready to rely on God's power and plan alone? Verse 20, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So people put down and destroyed their surrogate forms of success, of power, of confidence. And as a result, God's word was more widely and more deeply appreciated, and it was demonstrated to be more and more powerful. Episode 5, Journeys Continue, Where God's Move Takes Us, Part 2. We are nearing the end here, verses 21 and 22. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Paul's going to go back to the mother church at Jerusalem. And Luke doesn't say so here, but we know from Paul's letters to the believers in Corinth, 1 Corinthians, and to Rome, the book of Romans, that he wanted to bring the support from these Western churches to the persecuted Jerusalem church. It's a way of showing their gratitude for what the Jerusalem church had started and shared, and it's also an opportunity for them 
to combine with the rest of the body of Christ to support those in need. Now, he's going to send Timothy and Erastus ahead while he remains a little longer, and that's going to provide some excitement for next week's passage. But Paul is so ministry-minded. He wants to see the Gentile churches who have been blessed by the Gentile or the Jerusalem church. He wants to experience their gift being brought to Jerusalem. It's not just a thing he, he suggested and had happen. He wants to be a part of it. Now, earlier in the service, Tim talked about ways that we could serve the church, and he mentioned the card, and there's a communication card, and you can write on there, I'm interested in this. It could be something that Tim didn't mention. Maybe we don't need it, but maybe we do. Maybe we've been looking for it, and it just wasn't top on the list. But the thing I would encourage you with is, as we think about our own lives, sometimes we think about just us. Sometimes we think about a significant other. Sometimes we think about a household. Sometimes we think about a family. Do we think about this gathering? And do we think about Christ's church globally? What we see here is Paul developing a habit of fostering growth in the churches he planted, of reaching out to those who are in need, and of training up new leaders who were going to lead the cause in places that Paul couldn't be all the time. So as the, as the worship guys come up, um, one of the things that really encouraged me about how my father lived his life, especially in his later years, was his willingness to continue serving churches where he had attended. So, not just Church of the Valley, though we benefited from it, not just Trinity Church, which was where he was attending before COVID, but a church before that and some other church where he knew some people and knew they needed help. He, he fixed furnaces, he changed filters, he looked at electrical problems, he got quotes, he reviewed contracts, he did all kinds of behind-the-scenes things that got him no credit at all. And in some cases, not even a phone call from the pastor. But he did that not because he was looking for recognition. He was doing that because that was his way of loving Christ's bride, the church. And it's important to me that we not be like my dad. My dad was my dad. That job was filled. Each of us have a way that we can serve the body, and maybe it's just your bright smile to somebody who's hurting on the way in and on the way out. Could be just that, but maybe it's more. And I'm just asking, would you seriously consider not if you're already over-involved, don't continue to extend yourself further. That's not for you. But if you're not engaged... Would you consider how God is moving you to engage? Let me pray. God, I thank you for all the things that you set right when people in this passage didn't have it right. And I thank you for the example 
of fixating on Jesus and loving his church that Paul said. And I ask that you'd be stirring me to think about those who need to experience your love in a hands-on way. And I want to ask God that you would empower us by your spirit to see opportunities, to love those that you put in front of us, and I ask God that out of that would come people getting to know you who wouldn't know you well otherwise. And I pray that that transformation would happen not because we think it'll make you like us, but it'll happen because you've saved us and you've sealed us and you've designed us for a purpose and that you use us together to make not just our congregation but our community a better place to be because that fragrant aroma of Jesus covers it. It's in his name I pray. Amen.